0: there. The past nine months or so, I've really been wrestling with something, keeping this very close to the vest. Uh, The Catholic priest in town passed away recently, and he was not that much older than me. And for the past nine months, I've been looking at my time here at faith and what's coming next and things and you know this is the the funny thing is this is the year I said we're going to cut our spending we're going to take things slow and and this is the year our nursery ceiling fell in and uh we've spent a lot on uh other things um fixing up the basement like we did this past week and new air conditioner right a bunch of other maintenance things and so it's not really worked out the way I planned but uh My plan is to be here until I retire as your pastor. That would be my dream. That's my goal. But whenever uh, Sautner passed away, I I saw that in the paper that he wasn't that much older than me and I thought, well, I may not have a choice over how long I stay. And so I began to think, at least specifically for the past six or or nine or actually probably about the past year, what, what am I setting faith assembly of God up for? as your pastor, what should they expect from the pulpit every Sunday? What should they expect on Wednesday nights and teaching? What should they expect from their pastor? And I hope that I've I've set a good pace and, and set good expectations. This past week, somebody came to me and they said, Pastor, I, I really do appreciate your preaching. I, I love the fact that you can take one or two verses and and get so much out of it for us. And and that's called expository preaching. And some of you have heard this over the past few years. And if, you, if your eyes just glaze over when I start talking about types of preaching and things, that's fine. Go ahead and find Mark 14 and, and hold your place for a second. But uh, expository preaching is more than just going verse by verse through a, a text and giving commentary. Um, I was in a, another conference this past spring and a guy said, I'm an expository preacher. And that's actually kind of rare to hear someone talk like that in the Assemblies of God. And so I said, oh, I want to hear what he has to say about this. And what he meant by that was simply he just goes verse by verse and gives us his opinion on whatever he thinks it might mean. That's not expository. Expository means you're exposing what the scripture actually has to say. You are exegeting. The word exegesis means you're getting the meaning of the sermon out of the text. You're being led by the text. Eisegesis means you're reading into the text what you want it to mean. Sometimes we call that proof texting. And so my hope is one of the things that is a standard for our church going forward is expository preaching because expository preaching is Christ-centered preaching, It is gospel-proclaiming preaching. It's Trinitarian as it glorifies the Father. It points to Christ. It's empowered by the Spirit, and it follows the Scriptures, which were divinely breathed out by God. That's what I try to bring as I preach every Sunday. I may not always do it perfect, and I may not always do it well, but that's my goal. Someone might say, well, I don't like that style of preaching. That's boring. That's fair. But you don't really like preaching, if that's the case. You like entertainment, and that may not be the type of thing you really want, or this might not be the type of church for you. They don't want scriptural truth. They want emotion-driven speech that gives them a buzz for a few days and quickly dies out. Expository preaching is something you can take notes from, and throughout the week, go back and perform your own Bible study. In fact, As I preach, I hope to be modeling for you Bible study habits because I show you my work. You understand where I get things and, and where things come from and how the Scripture pieces together and harmonizes, going verse by verse and exposing what the Word of God actually says, not what we want it to mean. This is how the apostles preached. In Acts chapter 2, how Peter on the day of Pentecost, or how Stephen preaches to the Sanhedrin, Paul in Acts 17, and so on. It's how Jesus preaches in Luke twenty four twenty seven on the road to Emmaus. Throughout the scriptures, he shows how it points to him. And he says as much in John 5, 39. And someone might say, well, why continue to do that? That's an old method then. They've been doing that for 2,000 years. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said it best. He said, sin has not changed for 2,000 years. Mankind has not changed for 2,000 years. And therefore, the mission should not change for 2,000 years. Preach the word. That's what the Apostle Paul said. And that's what the pastor ought to do. That's that's the whole point of why I preach like I do and how I, I aim to preach. But it should go further than that for us as a church. It should also be the aim for our worship. Our worship, how we worship matters. The heart behind our worship matters. It's not about us. It's not about the good feeling that we get. It's about him, his goodness, his sending his son to die on behalf of sinful men and women, that we may be sanctified, justified, and redeemed. And today in our text, we we get a great contrast of worship and attitude about Christ. And if you will, stand with me as we read from the word this morning. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14, it says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, Not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head." But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time you may be seated this morning this is the theme of this chapter if there is a theme is one of betrayal that jesus is betrayed if the last chapter taught us anything that there were the signs of the times this chapter's theme is simply that of betrayal that jesus has been set up and today we see the table being set for that very thing Early on and throughout this chapter, that betrayal will be a background thing. It will always be hinted at, it will be lurking in the shadows. And while we've been moving and marching towards the crucifixion since we began going through the Gospel of Mark almost two years ago, we are now beginning the final countdown. This text today confronts us with a very hard truth and a very hard question. Do we have an attitude of adoration of Christ in the actions we perform, especially in the actions of worship? And to answer that, we have to remember this one simple thing. And if you're taking notes, I would strongly encourage you to write this down. Our worship methods express our worship motives. I'll say that again. Our worship methods express our worship motives. Often this can also be said about prayer. I have said this about prayer in the past. Our prayer methods expose our prayer motives. What we pray and how we pray and why we pray really shows the heart behind the prayer. Our methods and our motives truly matter. Now it should be said, as a side note, that both Matthew and John, not Luke, include this story in their gospel accounts. So when Jesus says, when the gospels proclaimed... He's right. This woman's account will also be shared at least three out of four times. And if you didn't pick up on this as I was reading through it, we have what we've seen before in the Gospel of Mark, one of those story sandwiches where something starts and then there's this whole other thing and then it kind of wraps up that which began the two pieces of bread with the burger in the middle if you will I say that because after service we're going to have a nice little uh, BGMC fundraiser hot dogs and hamburgers and I forgot to mention that during the announcement so you're all welcome to stay and kind of goes along with the message too because hey sandwich right But we see a deep contrast in this text. We see the hatred of the religious leaders. The worship of Mary. And the one who truly should have adored Jesus. The one who should have really gotten an idea of who he was and what he was about. The one who should have been pouring out everything in his adoration of Jesus was Judas. And in the middle of it all, he gets up and changes teams. For us, the takeaway is to question our own motives and our worship. Our own methods? What do they truly reflect about our heart towards Christ? Again, our worship methods express our worship motives. Now, I have divided up the text into four major stages the plot, the perfume, the point, and the plan. If you are taking notes, I want to write that down because it's a narrative, it's a story. Like I said, a story sandwich. We're just going to read it and go through it as it all unfolds. And it begins with the chief priests and the plot. We read again in verse 1, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. The ESV actually reads a little more accurately when it says, It was now two days before the Passover and unleavened bread. We have to remember when we read the text that the verse and chapter numbers were not always there. And this probably would be better suited at the end of what we call chapter 13. That the whole Olivet Discourse takes place now two days before the, day, the, 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 the festival. Now when the Jewish person says two days, what they really mean is Tomorrow. Right? Because they count today and then tomorrow. That's two days. This is all all of the Olivet Discourse took place on a Wednesday. The Passover meal will take place on Thursday evening. It's kind of how we get the whole Jesus died and three days later he rose. But when you look at your calendar, Good Friday is there. And two days later is Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday. Well, that's because the Jewish way of saying is three days, day after tomorrow. That's just the way they spoke. Now, the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away should have ended chapter 13, like I said, but that's not how it goes the grammar indicates this was something that was at the beginning chapter 14 when the chief priests and the scribes are meeting they're doing this at some point in history this is not necessarily the day before they've laid this plot out for some time they just decided not to do this during the festival and we'll see why But while it's God's providence and sovereignty on display when all this happens, it's also ironic that they really seem to want to catch him during the week of Passover and unleavened bread. Passover, of course, if you have studied your Bible, if you know when that first Passover took place, it was during a time in Exodus 12 when God was bringing wrath upon the nation of Egypt and he was going to pass through the land of Egypt, but he told the nation of Israel to take a lamb and shed its blood and over their door frame put the blood of the lamb and what god said was i'll go through the land of egypt on that night and i'll strike down the firstborn in the land of egypt both man and beast and against all the gods of egypt i'll execute judgment but the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live and where i see the blood i will pass over you and that's where we get the name no plague will befall you to destroy you when i strike the land of egypt That's what God told Moses to tell the people. And today, even now, there are people under wrath or they are under the blood. One of two options. There can be no in-between that's just the facts unleavened bread refers to the fact they left egypt the next morning that they had left they unified the two holidays into one in the jewish time of jesus in the first century leaven of course was removed from their homes as they were preparing to leave egypt leaven was symbolic of sin and so in a way what they were doing was sanctifying themselves they were repenting of their sin if you will before they passed through the water which Peter refers to as a type of baptism. Do you understand how that correlates to the Christian life? That there is repentance, there is a sanctification, an acceptance of Christ as Lord and Savior. And then there is a baptism that comes after. That's modeled in the Israel removal uh, from Egypt for us. And so it's ironic, I said, that this all takes place during the week of Passover, That Jesus is to die at a time when when Israel is celebrating a time they were freed from slavery. Because Christ's death will mean the means by which God will free us from sin. Slavery to it. The symbolism here is so obvious and yet so many people will skim past it and miss it. And the Jewish people, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, were obviously missing this. But notice the language Notice how Mark writes this for us. They've been plotting for some time. Jesus was very clear not that long ago when he talked to his disciples that the chief priests and the scribes, the same people mentioned in this text here, that they were the ones who were going to have him put to death. He told them back in chapter eight, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So, whether they mean to or not, whether they realize it or not, these men were fulfilling the words of Christ. They were fulfilling biblical prophecy. And yet they want to do it in secret, they want to do it by stealth, Mark tells us. The Greek word is Dalo. And we might tend to think of stealth as one thing, but really what it means, it's treachery, it's cunning, it's skilled deception. We might get this idea that they want to dress in all black and put hoods over their heads and and walk real low, like you see in a Bruce Lee movie, you know? Or or they're like ninjas, and they're going to sneak in while he's sleeping, put a bag over his head, and drag him off into a van like a Liam Neeson flick. It's nothing like that at all. They want to do it by treachery. They want to be tricky, tricky. These men are not cutthroats. These men are not ninjas. They're not pirates. In fact, they're actually something much worse. They're politicians. (laughs) And that explains their actions on the previous day. On Wednesday the Sanhedrin comes out. They try to catch Jesus in his words. They want to trick him. They want to subvert him. And they can't do it. So next steps in the Pharisees and the Herodians. And, and they give it their best shot. And if one party's not happy, the other party will be mad. That's how they decide to set him up, right? And he, he uses his words so carefully and, and evades them again. And then come the Sadducees who don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the resurrection. They would fit into a different church this morning. They don't believe in anything like that. And all their efforts, all their attempts to trick or trap him, They don't work. They don't work because he's better than them, if we're being honest. He's greater than them. Ultimately, their games, as far as they were concerned, have to end in his death, one way or another. And they know they can't beat him. So they've decided they've got to do something else. You see, he's caused a lot of problems for the religious leaders He's been a thorn in their side, and they want him dead. He's threatened their power. He's threatened their authority. And most of all, the, what, the one thing he has threatened more than anything else is their worship, the worship of themselves. Their worship has been thrown off the past few years by this carpenter from Nazareth. So they're going to plot, but they refuse to rush it. This can't be done too quickly or the wrong time because, verse 2 tells us, for they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Now Josephus tells us that Jerusalem during this time would normally have a population around 50,000 people. But during the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the population would swell anywhere from 2 million to 3 million people. Now some say he might be exaggerating. I don't think he was. This is the entire nation coming to Jerusalem to worship, to feast, to see each other, to mingle. This is like the county fair, right? This is bigger than that. Much, much bigger than that. And in those people, in those millions of people who are now swarming to Jerusalem, there's a big number that are from Capernaum that are from Galilee, that are from the regions where Jesus has been preaching and teaching for going on three years now. And he clearly had fans in the city because just a few days before the, the previous chapter, they'd all laid their coats on the ground and shouted, Hosanna, as he rode into town. The leaders had been afraid of the crowd because Jesus was also, if you recall, he's very closely associated with this other guy called John the Baptist, And the crowd thinks pretty highly of John the Baptist. They think he's a prophet. And if John the Baptist, and it was well known, had endorsed Jesus, and they weren't too happy about what happened to John the Baptist, they're not going to be too happy should something befall Jesus, right? So if they do something, they have to have plausible deniability. They've got to find themselves a scapegoat. They need someone from Jesus' camp to come over and turn on him And we see that begin to play out. Even back in chapter 12, they'd wanted to grab Jesus, but their fear of the crowd kept them at bay. So they know what they're doing here. Researching this and and looking at the commentators and church history and what people have believed about these men for some time, it's almost as if they are not new to this putting down an enemy or eliminating competition. This attack on Jesus, let's be honest, it's not their first rodeo. These were not men with a heart after God. These were men with a heart after the mob. And by that, I mean the mafia. Someone once told me, they said, Al Capone had nothing on Caiaphas, and I think that might be true. They're going to take their time. They're going to play the long game if they have to. But they will want Jesus killed and they'll want him killed in at least their time. Make no, mis- no, make no mistake about this. The sooner the better, of course. But they have to be careful. They do not want to upset the people. This is why I say they were truly worshipers of self. You understand, we're not meant, we're not made to worship alone. Our worship is not meant to be a solo act at home on the couch. If you're watching online, I'm sorry. We'd love to have you join us. But that's not the way church was intended. That's not the way worship was intended. We're not designed to only worship alone. Even worshiping idols, if you look at the history of Israel, throughout Israel's history, it may have began with one person in a city. It may have began with one small town, but it quickly became a nationwide event. And the worship of self is the exact same way. These men, they would want people to reinforce their false worship. Or it quickly becomes meaningless to them. If I think I'm great, but everybody else thinks I'm a dirtbag, well, maybe I'm going to start to question my worship of myself. And that's what's happening to these men. And they don't like it. Their position is threatened. And their position is an indication that they are worthy of their own worship. And their motives are clear throughout their methods. They want the people to stop listening to this Jesus at whatever cost and come back to rallying around them. But now let's get to the perfume. Verse 3. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. This is Mark shifting gears while he was in Bethany. What that means is this could happen at any point while he's staying in Bethany. Anytime before the Wednesday night before the crucifixion. John actually tells us it was the previous Saturday, John 12, 1, Likely when Jesus and his disciples first arrived in town. And this would make sense. He arrives in town, he stops at a friend's house and And the whole scene begins to unfold. The key with this is when Mark tells us while he was in Bethany, it leaves it open to being something that takes place at any point in time. Now, Matthew is going to agree with the placement of this story, but you have to remember the New Testament writers, they weren't, they weren't worried about the chronological events being put in right order. They were worried about the theme. That's how you wrote in the first century Palestine era. You would write according to themes. So that's why some things seem to happen out of line with other gospel accounts. But his wording lets us understand that it could be at any point. And so, what we really understand by reading John's gospel is what we are witnessing here in the first 11 verses of chapter 14 as a flashback. How I many of you remember 1990s TV shows and flashbacks? They used to have those, right? My mom made me watch soap operas as a kid. And I would see flashbacks of things that happened years before on those shows. And that was so interesting to me. This is history. Now, this guy's twin brother has been in this coma this whole time, ever since that happened. And I thought that was just so cool. No wonder I grew up liking comic books and pro wrestling. They're all soap operas. But a flashback, that's what we're privy to here. Jesus comes to town, he arrives in Bethany, and he stops at the home of this man we've not heard of before, Simon the leper. And we understand Simon's no longer a leper because to be in his home would be to make someone unclean. Unclean for worship, unclean for entering the temple. And Jesus has done this at least three out of the last three days. We don't know much about Simon the leper. Scripture doesn't give us much information. Some theorize he was actually Lazarus' father. That's why Lazarus is there, and Mary and Martha. The safe assumption that whoever Mark's audience was, they knew who Simon the leper was, or had at least heard of him. That's why he mentions him by name. And some also believe that he might be the first leper Jesus heals in the Gospel of Mark. You know, that man who was told, go show your healing to the priest, but he couldn't keep it to himself. And he goes around telling everybody he's so excited to the point Jesus can't even enter into the towns. He has to preach in the countryside. But either way, this man has this home open to the Savior, and that night in Bethany, he comes over, and so does Lazarus, so does Martha, their sister Mary. Mary is the woman, by the way, that has this alabaster vial. We know this because in John's gospel, he lays it out for us like this. He says, so they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, and that tracks, because that's Martha's character. We've seen that before. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Lazarus was reclining at the table. Well, with Jesus, that that makes sense because back then they didn't use chairs. Forget Leonardo da Vinci's painting, okay? They didn't have tables like that. They would often lay down or recline on cushions and pillows. I'm trying to do it without falling down so you get an idea what it looked like. But... But they would do that because the idea was this would aid in digestion, that it would help them burn the calories faster. You're welcome to try it. Let me know how it works for you. I, I don't know. I usually just sit in a chair. But they're reclining, and we don't know what they're talking about, and they're, they're conversing. They're having this time. And in walks this woman, who we know to be Mary. And in her hand, she holds this vial of alabaster. This would have been a long neck bottle made out of marble or a type of gypsum made from limestone deposits. We're not really sure exactly. But it was perfect for storing perfumes and oils. And we have to be careful here because this happens at another point in Jesus' ministry. In Luke chapter 7, we see another person do something very similar. But that was a different woman, a different scenario, and a different point. Mary is not this unbelieving sinner who washes Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair in the home of a Pharisee. That's a different, like I said, a different story entirely. Although she does use an alabaster flask and she does wipe his feet with her hair, the woman in Luke, her story has more to do with the essence of repentance rather than the worship of Jesus. And Mary, though she comes in, she takes this very costly perfume of pure nard and she breaks it open. Now, the nard or spike nard would have been imported from India or eastern Arabia. It would be very rare. That's why it's so expensive. And its purity adds to its expensiveness. She couldn't just pop the lid open either. You see, this is an oil that is an all or nothing type of event. It's not like you, you spray it on today or anything. You, you have to break it open and use it then and there. And she pours it all upon the head of Jesus. Now John tells us it's about a pound, a Roman pound. It would be about 10 or 12 fluid ounces, about half this water bottle. And she pours it out upon his hair and his head, the oil now flowing upon Jesus. And what this really tells us is her affection and her adoration that Mary had for her Lord. She's likely one of the women brave enough, bold enough to stand at the cross later in Mark fifteen forty, Mark tells us there were many women there, so it's quite possible. But for just a second here, we're going to rabbit trail, and I want to address something that's kind of come up in recent news in the church lately. This was a woman anointing Jesus. It wasn't even one of the disciples. It wasn't James. It wasn't Peter, John. It wasn't even his host that night. It was a woman from town, someone who'd also followed him, who came in and poured that perfume upon his head. It's not in a way to say that she's greater than him by any way or that she held authority over him, but that she ministered to him. That we cannot deny. Like I said, there's been a lot of debate about women's place in Ministry, their role in the church recently. Can women be pastors and can women teach and so on? Now, if we look at this idea for just a moment this morning, if you'll bear with me, I want to be very clear. There is nothing in Scripture that says a woman cannot have a ministry, nor is there anything that says she cannot do ministry. Whether they are deacons, Phoebe was a servant or diaconos. Romans 16.1 tells us, I commend you our sister Phoebe, who was a servant of, the Lord, uh, servant of the church, which is at Sancrea. Servant, diaconos, it's where we get the word deacon. Phoebe was a deacon. Priscilla ministered with her husband, Aquila, and it's likely Aquila was the louder voice in the room as they discipled Apollos at Ephesus in Acts 18. We can assume that. But that does not negate her role in the ministry. We could list other names. Tabitha, Junia, Yodia, Centissi, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis. These are all women who have ministries within the church. In fact, Paul ministered in those churches as well. Yodia and Centissi likely hosted churches in their homes. Might have even, we cannot argue that they pastored the churches within their homes, but they at least hosted them. And that wouldn't be a good argument for those of you who really want to argue for women pastors because these two women did not get along with each other. So you might want to leave that out if you're debating somebody. But yet they did have a ministry. I see nothing that says women cannot minister or have no place in the church. I think that's ridiculous. Now can women be pastors? That's the real question, isn't it? And the assemblies of God, yes, absolutely they can. But the question then becomes, well, should they be pastors? And I would say, yes, if they are called. And I want to stress that, if they are called by God. James tells us, James 3.1, Not many of you should want to become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such will incur stricter judgment. Now what I'm about to say Please hear me out before you get angry with me, okay? Before you go and grab the bucket of rotten tomatoes. I know you all keep in your car for that one day pastor goes off the rails. This is not it. Just hold on, okay? Many women preachers today do not exegete scripture. We have to be real about that and honest about that if we're going to be fair about this topic. They do not exegete scripture. They do not exposit the word. They do not preach properly. Many preach a gospel of feminism or good feelings long before they ever get to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But to be fair, many male preachers these days do not exegete scripture, they do not exposit the word. And many preach a gospel of fill in the blank and good feelings long before they ever get to the gospel of Jesus. When it comes to the call of God, we have to know this God does not answer to affirmative action. He does not answer to status quo of the American society. If he calls, then we must test and confirm that calling, the same as we would with any young man who also says he feels called. We must understand that God sees the heart. For Samuel sixteen seven makes that very clear. So to settle the matter, I hope, in our church, we should not care if a preacher is male or female, black, white, tall, short, skinny, fat, But are they called and are they biblical? Are they bringing the word of God? Because that is the true test. Amen? Amen. It was a woman who in an act of adoration and worship anointed and ministered to Jesus in our text. We can't deny that. It did not matter, however, her gender. It mattered what was in her heart. And she poured it all out upon his head, saying he was worth more than the most costly of perfumes. Again, I want to stress our worship methods often express our worship motives. Verses 4 and 5. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. The phrase indignantly remarking to one another, if we were to literally translate that into English, what it would really say is they were offended within themselves. How many of you know people like that? They're the only ones with the problem. Oh, pastor, a bunch of us were saying this, and you were really the only one saying that, right? I'd mentioned that last week. If you want to grumble and complain what to do with that. But these men, they believed they had a right to be upset, a right to be offended, a right to be vexed and indignant. This perfume was basically, in in their eyes, it was destroyed. 300 denarii, that's a year's wages, just down the tubes, pouring just down the hairs of this Jesus guy. I mean, don't get me wrong, Jesus is great, but hey... We could have did something with that stuff. We could have, um, let me think about this, we could have, uh, what's going to make me sound pious and righteous? And We could have sold that and give money to the poor. Come on, man. Mary, think with your head, right? It's likely the way it went down. This is their attempt, and John tells us Judas's voice was the loudest among them, by the way, to sound pious and righteous, but the real heart behind it was selfishness. John says, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. The method was, we should be giving this to the poor. The motive was, "Mm, so we can skim a little off the top. That's really what's happened here. It had nothing to do with Jesus in their eyes. The worship was not on him. The worship was on wealth. Perhaps it wouldn't have been so bad, but they're scolding her as if she'd done something wrong. And the word means they rebuked her deeply. They sharply told her off. They were the ones who should be adoring Jesus. They were the ones who should be worshiping him, focusing their adoration and Yet it was Mary who made the great sacrifice. It was Mary who gave up something costly in an act that, as they saw, it would be so destructive. And again, I would remind you, the methods of our worship reveal our motives for worship. But Jesus gets right to the point. He cuts right to the heart, as Jesus so often does. Verses 6 and 7, it says... But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. I want to catch this. I hope you catch this, please. Notice what Mark said there. But Jesus said, in the midst of their scolding, in the midst of their negativity, but Jesus said. These are life-altering words. When we are rebuked by the world, when the people around us wag their fingers at us, at our faith, at our worship, and we feel beaten, betrayed, scared, scoffed at, but Jesus said can quickly turn the whole thing on its head. But Jesus said changes everything. We just need to know what Jesus said and know it well. And let his words change our heart, change our minds. James says, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. What Jesus said, what was the word. And it can change your life. And in this instance, what's he say? Let her alone. Leave her alone, you guys. In the Greek, it's it's actually one word, afete. Forgive Forgive. Forgive her. It's the same root word when Jesus is on the cross and everyone's hurling insults at him and everyone's mocking him and everyone's taunting him and Jesus cries out, what's he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it's basically the same thing he says to them here. Forgive her. We might look at him and say, hey, stop being so harsh. Hey, knock it off. Jesus says, stop it. Forgive her. Why do you bother her? Why do you trouble her? She's done a good deed to me. In fact, the ESV says this more accurately. That word good says she's done a beautiful thing to me. On one hand, aside from the burial, we might look at this we might think about the anointing of Aaron as the high priest oil running down his head Psalm 133 David captures this and he he compares it to the unity of the body of believers he says behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity it's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes and we think of Jesus as our high priest and we we look at this and we say well she's anointing him that's not exactly what's happening what is happening is she is, a, she is preparing him for burial. She's anointing him. And she's doing it in an act of worship. When everybody else wags their finger, fingers at her, Jesus approves of what others might see as waste. I'll say that again. Jesus approves of what others might see as waste. This is how so many times those around us might see our worship. When I was working in social services in, in Valley City, you know, people bring in their finances if they want food stamps or, or government assistance for Medicaid and Medicare, things like that. And one of my coworkers asked me to come over to her cubicle. She says, you know about this sort of thing. This family gives $50 a month to their church. Why do they give so much money? They can barely afford groceries. And I said, well, f- for them, it's worship. Well, I don't understand that. I said, you go to church, don't you? Yeah, I said, well, do you ever give in the offering plate when they pass it around? Well, you know, sometimes. I said, okay, for them, this is something they do faithfully every month they give in worship. Well, do you do that? And I'm not bragging about myself. Don't, please do not think, Pastor Jeff, because if you know anything about my story, I didn't always tithe happily. I said, well, actually, my wife and I, we've come to agree to give 10%, and we're both government employees. She quick does the math, you guys give too much money to your church. That's what she says. She didn't understand the principle of adoring your Savior. She didn't understand worship. And so it was a good time to sit down and a good teachable moment about tithing. Wes, you would have loved it. I wish you could have been there. Probably would have done a much better job than I did that day. But the point was, this is something we do. This is an act of worship. And others will see it as a waste. And Jesus says, it's not a waste. It's worship of me. And so Jesus turns the tables on these men and he begins to scold them. He says, you always have the poor with you. He's actually quoting the Old Testament, by the way, Deuteronomy fifteen eleven. The poor will never cease to be in the land. But then he continues, he says, whenever you wish, you can do good to them. Opportunities to minister to the poor are always there. We read this, and I'm thinking about the, the pastor Q&A. What's the church doing about this in town? What's the church going to do about that in town? It was one of the questions we got. What are you doing about this in town? Was one of the replies. You don't have to wait on the church. Well, there's poor people starving. You got food in your cabinet, right? What are you, what are you, what are you getting at? It sounds more pious to put it on somebody else, and that's what these men were doing. These men could go help the poor any time they wanted to. They don't have to wait on Mary's perfume to be sold. The same is true for us. We can help any time we want. But Jesus is emphasizing for the church That he's not going to be there much longer. And he's not saying, don't minister to the poor. Don't misunderstand me. We should minister to the poor. But there's a specific time for that. The aim of the church, the focus, the main purpose of the church is worship. And building up Christians, teaching, making disciples. Not being a soup kitchen. Again, not to say that we can't or shouldn't do those things. We absolutely should if we can. The higher priority of the church is Specifically, worship of Christ. And also, we know this when he says this, he's pointing to his own divinity because to worship anything or anyone else would be blasphemous. So Jesus goes on in verse 8, he says, She's done what she could, she's anointed my body beforehand for the burial. I've probably read through this text a hundred times this past week. And every time I get to that line, she has done what she could, I stop. And I read, could this be said of me? Could this be said of our church? Not because our salvation's based in works, but because we're saved, we do good works. Have we done what we could? Have we blessed Jesus today? I could have, but have I? He says, she's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for the burial. And this is why that's such a big deal, in every account of the in every gospel account Jesus's burial it's rushed, it's done quickly. That's because it was a Friday night and Sabbath was beginning at sundown. They wanted to get it over with. And also there was the holiday happening, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So no typical spices or ointments that were typically used got used. The traditional things were left to the side except here. Here, This shows that Mary knew her time with Jesus was short and so she worshipped him. It's here that Jesus is anointed. Here that he receives the ointments for his burial. that he's truly prepared almost a week before his crucifixion. Of course when we look at the crucifixion we understand it's not permanent. So it's a good gesture Mary, thank you but it's kind of moot, Right? And yet it still upholds the tradition. And regardless, Jesus ends with this in verse 9. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. See, the world's not meant to forget Mary's sacrifice. We are not meant to overlook it. She did a great thing for her Lord, and we should acknowledge that. And she will always be tied to the gospel narrative. Her spot's secure in that, and it's not a small part of the story. But we have to understand, this is not the gospel. It's not the gospel itself. But it's evidence of a heart that has received the gospel, who has accepted Christ above all things. Paul said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And many times we'll see that and we'll say, see, that's, that's a heart that's received a gospel. But in our society, that means something much different than when Paul said that. Because for Paul to tell the Romans, if you if you Admit Jesus is Lord, to do so would be to deny anything else was Lord, including Caesar, including the Roman gods and Pantheon. You are denying the world and saying Jesus is Lord. You see, a faith and a belief that Paul's talking about, and what Mary is is showing us, is this isn't a belief that just makes you say something. It's a belief that changes you from the inside out. Our belief should do more than just have us express our love for Jesus verbally. It should be a belief that changes our entire life. The gospel helps us understand once and for all what a costly thing really is. It's nothing in comparison to Christ and what he's done. And anything that we have as a a means of worship is either something we would give up in an act of worship or it is entirely meaningless. The point is Mary received nothing in return for what she did. She gave all she had to him. This is how we understand our worship methods express our worship motives. She emptied everything of worth that night upon his head. But as this is a story sandwich in a narrative, like I said, we've got one last slice of bread to chew through. Verse 10, the plan. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Now remember, Judas has almost a week to plot. This all took place on a Saturday before the triumphal entry, before the cleansing of the temple, before the Olivet Discourse. By the time we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas has been watching Jesus' habits. He's been on the inside, leaking information. And here he stands in sharp contrast to the love and devotion of Mary, the one who should have shown love and devotion to Jesus most of all. Judas, the disciple, becomes Judas the traitor. The name Iscariot, by the way, I mentioned this way early in our series. It means man of Kiriath. It means he's not from Galilee. He's not like the rest of the disciples. He's been an outsider since the very beginning. Judas likely never had any spiritual interest in Jesus. I don't care what the chosen might tell you or what Max Lucado's books might say about him. He looked at Jesus as a way to gain power, either religious or political or both. Jesus saw a potential path toward wealth and fame and everything that came with being associated with a celebrity like Jesus. He loved being a part of the entourage But when it wasn't working out, when things weren't adding up, Judas, like the other men who berated Mary, he'd enjoyed his prestige that came with being close to Jesus. But this whole scene with the perfume and the wastefulness and Jesus' careless attitude towards money, how could you be so careless? That's 300 denarii, that's a year's wages. Jesus, come on. Well, it drives him away. And Jesus knew. He knew for a while. And and he knew from the start. That's why he chose Judas to be a disciple. He knew that he was going to be the one to betray him. Scripture promises as much. Even in the Old Testament, Psalm 41, my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Zechariah 11, I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. If not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And other verses, of course, also point to this. But John, I love John's gospel. I don't know why I chose Mark exactly, I guess, over John's, because John's is so interesting. John has such a good bead on Judas from the very beginning. He makes no secret about it. Of course, John had years to look back and say, I should have saw that. But John never lets up on Judas. He says in John six sixty four. Jesus is talking, he says, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Hint, it's Judas. A few verses later, Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? How would you like that? You know, I've had teachers say some pretty mean things to me in my life, but I've never been called a devil. That would be a traumatizing thing, Right? And yet, I, don't, I remember one time, some of you guys know Dave Bennett. And he was talking about something. I think he was talking about exorcisms, which were way off topic. This is just a funny story. And he looks at, he looks around the class as he's talking, and he says, and you can, in the, in the power of Jesus' name, you can look right at a, at a demon, and I'm going to look at the door when I say this, you can look right at the demon and say, go to hell. And right as he said, go to hell, he looked right at me. And I remember the whole time going, Hey! why'd you look at me and to this day we laugh about it but it's one of those things and can you imagine Judas Jesus is he he doesn't know that Jesus is talking about him it could be Peter it could be Thaddeus it could be somebody else entirely but John says he knew who it was he was a devil he misses he rarely misses a chance to kind of point out the kind of person Judas was He's the one who, if you remember, called him a thief who'd pilfer from the money bag. Of course, the religious leaders, the, they probably got excited when they saw Judas walk through the door. They were licking their chops. Well, Mary was looking for an opportunity to worship. This is what transpires. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking to betray him at an opportune time. I wonder how long it took Judas to get around to the topic of money. Did he walk in and say, how much are we talking for Jesus? To the highest bidder? Or did he, did he wait for a second and hear what their side was? Eventually he says, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. Did he even wait? Or did he just walk in and say, "I'll get, you give me this much money and I'll, I'll turn him over? He began to seek how to betray Jesus. He wouldn't do it publicly. Luke tells us he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. You see, Judas wants to get the biggest bang for his buck out of this. If he does it secretly, if he does it in a way he's not going to humiliate himself or associate himself with Jesus, all the better. Now some would have you believe that the Judas had intentions of pushing Jesus to rise up and become the king he was meant to be and all of this stuff. Or, or possibly he would slink away in the shadows whenever, because he knew what was happening and all of that. No, none of that's true. He was a vile man. He was a traitor. He was a scoundrel. The opportunity will present itself the next evening. After the meal, Jesus goes off to the Garden of Gethsemane with the eleven and Judas will betray his friend with a kiss. His motives all along are exposed, his methods unclean, poison leading to death. And yet we know none of this happens apart from God's plan. Jesus chose him. And that Christ would die even for the sins of someone like Judas, as much for ours. We have to understand the ball is left in our court. We are responsible for whether or not we accept that truth, that Christ died for us. How we respond, our methods, our motives truly reflect how we relate to Him. Either we worship Him as Lord or we shun Him entirely. This morning I'm going to move to close. We've gone a little longer than I intended. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. And I would ask you to challenge yourself this morning where is my heart in my worship? Where are my motives in my worship? What do I get out of worship? What should I get? Nothing but the satisfaction of knowing we have given our Lord all we can. Mary received nothing, nothing that her obedience and her sacrifice did not grant her. She understood Jesus' time was short, that his death was on the horizon. And in the same way today, if you will stand with us, we're going to sing as we close. But let our methods of worship often reflect our motives. Are we drawing attention to ourselves or are we pointing to Christ? Are we trying to get something out of worship or are we giving him all we have? Go ahead. We'll worship together this morning.